Pentecost, which we are celebrating today, was celebrated in ancient Israel according to the law 50 days after the Passover. Pentecost means 50th. And it was an agricultural feast that celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. And in our text this morning from Acts chapter 2, we're told right at the outset that the day of Pentecost had come. Fifty days after the Passover of our Lord's death. And so traditionally the church always celebrates Passover on the Sunday closest to 50 days after Easter. Now Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he tells us back in chapter 1 of Acts that in his gospel, he says, in my gospel, I wrote an account. And what he wrote about was what Jesus began to do and teach before his ascension. He says, here then in Acts, he's recounting the ongoing work of the ascended Christ. So that Pentecost is the ascended Jesus at work. So I want to make three points. Three relatively, I think, straightforward points about this text. The event, I want to look at the event itself. Then the nations. And then Peter's commentary. The event, the nations, and then Peter's commentary. So you have the disciples all in one place. And in verse 2, Luke tells us, of this startling phenomenon. There's a sound from heaven, he says, like the blowing of a violent wind, and it fills this house. This is the appearance, the outward sign of the Spirit of God descending. And that same Spirit, which is like wind, also comes as fire. Divided tongues of fire are said to rest on each of them. You might remember John the Baptist. When he came baptizing, he said that the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This then is the fulfillment of John's word. This is what he was pointing to. And the result is that they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And these tongues here, in this context, mean languages. The context makes this perfectly clear. This is not unintelligible prattling. These are languages. Now, Luke makes a number of really interesting side comments in this text. We learn something remarkable. Now, he says that you know because Pentecost was one of the three feasts that all... Jews had to be in Jerusalem for, we're told that God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were gathered there. They're in Jerusalem. Now, think for a minute about what this means. The Jews had been scattered, the northern ten tribes, in the 8th century B.C., in the Assyrian invasion. Destroyed the northern kingdom. It was obliterated and never restored. And the remaining southern kingdom, two small tribes, is exiled two centuries later into Babylon. 
And some of these Jews, some come back from Babylon to the land during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, but many didn't come back. The vast majority of Jews have been absorbed as citizens throughout the known world. And these Jews, who had no prophet nor any revelation from God for 400 years, are in this text here called devout or God-fearing men. They had remained faithful to Yahweh, even in exile, in the far-flung corners of the world for centuries. And so the judgments of God, the scattering judgments of His people, are in His tender mercies, His preliminary way of bringing the faith of Israel to the whole world. Things are not always as they seem when God seems to be smashing everything to bits. So this international multitude of Jews and converts to Judaism is in Jerusalem for Pentecost as the Torah says they should be. And they hear this ruckus, and they come together, (coughs) and they're confused. And as an aside here, this points to Luke's reliability of a historian. You don't have to take this account just on the disciples' word. Luke is telling you, look, there were hundreds if not thousands of people that saw and heard this event. I even know all the countries they were from. So they're confused, because everyone hears them speaking, in their own native language. So they hear Jews, the disciples, right, from Palestine, speaking in all the languages of the world. Right? And they know this cannot be normal. So they say, aren't all these who, who speak Galileans? Right, they know that these are not Jews who have been scattered from the nations. These are local Jews. Actually, they're Galileans, and they were known to be rough and uncultured and have a distinct accent. Remember, Peter got in trouble because of his accent. So look at verse 8. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Again, notice, tongues are real human languages here. These are real human languages that are being spoken. The disciples spoke, and the Jews from all around the world heard their native tongue. That's what happened at Pentecost. That's the event itself. Now, the second thing here is the nations. I've already sort of alluded to it, but it is very tempting to skip over, or at least skim quickly, verses 9 through 11 in this text, which contains a list of the origins of these pilgrims. But the presence of this list is really A crucial piece of the story. In fact, it may even be the crucial piece of the story. Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites. These are various people groups from what is roughly modern-day Iran. Persians. Next are residents of Mesopotamia, roughly modern-day Iraq. Then Judea, right? The local regional Jewish population. Then the text says Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Those are all terms for what in the New Testament was called Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. 
These are the places they're streaming into Jerusalem. Phrygia and Pamphylia, those are more provinces in Asia Minor. And then the list turns south to North Africa and says Egypt and Libya. And then north and further west into Europe, visitors from Rome. As far away as Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. And then finally back east, Cretans from the Mediterranean island of Crete. And finally, Arabs, people from the Arabian Peninsula. Jews from every one of these places. What a remarkable list. The significance of this should not be overlooked. These are the nations that Luke described previously as every nation under heaven. They weren't literally from every nation under heaven, of course, but they represented the whole known Greco-Roman world. So what does Luke include the list for? Well, it has a twofold significance. First, it tells us that Pentecost means the Spirit is given so that it's going to be given to all nations. So that the good news of the gospel and the glorious deeds of God can go to the world. Pentecost means we now live in the age of the ascended Son's triumph. His expanding dominion. His profuse outpouring of the Spirit. The age of the ingathering of all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. The gift of the ascended Spirit is Christ making His reign global. He who is the first fruits. Remember, Pentecost was an agricultural first fruits type of celebration. He who is the first fruits is beginning to prepare the whole harvest. And closely related to this is the fact that this means Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. Right? We saw, that's the reason Genesis 11 was the Old Testament reading this morning. We saw the account of the judgment at the Tower of Babel from Genesis chapter 11. Pentecost is the anti-Babel. At Babel, the nations acted in pride, seeking a kind of unity. Here, the disciples wait in humility on the Lord's promise. At Babel, remember, they sought to ascend to heaven. At Pentecost, the Spirit comes down as gift. At Babel, the nations were scattered. At Pentecost, the nations were gathered. At Babel, divine judgment fell confusing the languages of the earth. And at Pentecost, through the gift of tongues, the earth's language divisions are overcome. You know, the language divisions on the earth are not a blessing. Or certainly not an unalloyed blessing. Right, this, this came home to me the first time uh, I flew to Tokyo and got off the plane. And I thought... This is Genesis chapter 11. There are no signs in English. The cab drivers don't speak English. And, you know, and this, is, this is a judgment. It's a, it's, a, it's a tax on your existence to have to overcome this. You need translators and you need interpreters. It makes conducting business across the nations and thus man's task of dominion, it makes it harder. 
We don't think about this. We think, well, they speak French because they speak French. No, they speak French because the human race has fallen and divided and under the judgment of Babel. So Pentecost means that God, through this ascended one, is undoing the scattering of Babel. He's undoing the scattering judgments. That's why Luke's got this list from the far ends of the earth. He's creating one new man, one new humanity in the church. So Pentecost is a new day. The new day creates a new people. The new people point to the beginnings of a new world. What happens right after? Genesis chapter 11 and the incidents of Babel in the Old Testament. After God scatters the nations in judgment, what is the first thing he does? He calls Abraham right after Babel and says, through you, all these scattered nations will be blessed. Every family, every tribe and every tongue. And now in Christ, the seed of Abraham, God is fulfilling that promise. He's moving it into its final act. Pentecost is the anti-Babel, the undoing of Babel. It means God is, he is and he will heal the nations. He'll remake the divided world one. And so all these people, they hear the disciples speaking in their own native language, and what are they talking about in these strange tongues? You can see that in verse 11. It says they're declaring the wonders of God. The first thing the gift of the Spirit does is it turns our speech Upward and purifies it and, and places the high praises of God into our mouth. That is a preeminent fruit of the Spirit. These people are remembering God's extraordinary deeds, His reconciling works, His actions in history. The God of Israel is the God who acts, who reveals Himself. And now He's the one being celebrated in all the world's languages. This is a scene here which points and is finally fulfilled in the book of Revelation, where before the throne of the Lamb who was slain but is alive forevermore, you find every tribe and tongue and nation and language rendering Him homage, worshiping Him. That's the nations. The third thing we want to look at is Peter's uh, inspired commentary on this text. There's a pattern here. Right? Throughout the history of God's dealings with us, His people for redemption, God acts, and then He interprets His acts. He says, okay, I just did that. Let me tell you what this means. And that's what's going on here. God just acted, and then Peter stands up and says, let me tell you what this means. He says, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And what he says is somewhat startling. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He could have said, this, this promise goes back to Babel and Abraham. There's nothing really um, uniquely surprising about Pentecost to someone who understands the Old Testament. Immediately, Peter points to the continuity with the Old Testament. The Spirit filling the church that's not an afterthought in the plan of God. That's the long foretold fulfillment of the prophets. And Peter here quotes from Joel chapter 2. In the last days, 
God says. The church lives in the end times. The last days, according to this text, began at Pentecost. Notice that. The last days are not the last days of our era. They're the whole of our era. Because the end has already come in Jesus Christ. The end has broken into time. These are the last days. All of this is confirmed. This presence of this end time. By the various signs that Peter cites in the text. These portents and wonders. Here I want to skip ahead to verses 19 through 21. In verse 19, again, he's quoting Joel. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. This is what happens in the last days. There were such signs indeed that attended our Lord's first advent. Right? There was a strange star in the heavens. The sun was darkened at his crucifixion. Tombs were opened and old saints were wandering about. And now we have these signs, wind and fire, heavenly yet visible on earth. All of these signs are signs of the last times or the end time, the period in which we live. These signs and others, such as blood and fire and billows of smoke, the text says, the sun being darkened and the moon being turned to blood, they all proceed what the text calls the great coming Day of the Lord. Now, that's a lot of commentary on Pentecost from Peter, isn't it? From Joel 2. Peter is thinking something like this, inciting Joel here by the Spirit's inspiration. He's, his mind works like that. He says, Jesus brings the end. And because Jesus inaugurates the new creation, the old creation must be dismantled. And Pentecost means that the judgment and the restoration of the world have already begun. And this time that you live in, this time of Pentecost, is the time of the end. It will culminate in this coming glorious day of the Lord. Pentecost is a foretaste of that. And in the meantime, we live in anticipation of that great coming day of God. And in this spirit, waiting for that day of the Lord, we are to live as the prophetic community of witnesses. Look at verse 17. Peter, again, he's still citing Joel. He says, God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even the servants shall have the Spirit poured out on them, and they too shall prophesy. Now, if you're a careful reader of your New Testament, you're, you're probably thinking something like this. No one in this scene has either prophesied, or saw a dream, or had a vision. What is Peter talking about? How can this be the fulfillment of Joel? Peter's point is what you see here with, with tongues and those tongues being interpreted or understood is basically the same thing as prophecy. 
It's a form of prophetic witness. Paul basically says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Tongues that are properly heard, interpreted, if you will, is prophecy. And his point here is that what you see, men, Jews from all over the world, what you see here is a pointer to the fact that the Spirit who was given to some in the Old Testament, in some measure, is now going to be given to all in fullness in the New Testament. There are not some anointed people in the body of Christ. Every man, woman, and child in here has been anointed by God's Spirit for witness and service. And in a way that the glory you possess and the power you possess and the fullness you possess exceeds the occasional sporadic filling of the Spirit in the Old Testament. And that's what this text is saying. Now, the text says, all God's people are prophets. Remember Moses in in, in Numbers chapter 11? He says, oh Lord, would that all your people would be prophets. That is fulfilled here. All Christians are filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit is the prophetic Spirit. And that means all members of the body, no exclusions, all have been gifted by the Spirit. Notice the text, all flesh, sons, daughters, old men, young men, male and female servants. The whole people of God are now charismatic. Now the word has a lot of associations in our day, but it has an immense amount of truth that no one can neglect. Charismatic simply means to be gifted by the Spirit. Empowered for ministry and service. This is what we saw back in Ephesians 4. This is not the responsibility or the sole responsibility, thank God, of the leadership. The leadership exists to equip the saints for the labor of service. And we see that here. The point of Pentecost is the Spirit is poured out in power on every single member of the body of Christ. Now, of course, the event itself, Pentecost itself, with all of these signs, is unrepeatable in a certain way. It's, 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 it's a capstone to Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. But that need not detain us or, or, or distract us from the fact that we, though we can't have a new Pentecost, if you will, we participate richly in the glorious gift of the Spirit. What does Paul say? He says to the Corinthian church, he says, by one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit. There are no unspirit baptized Christians. That's an oxymoron. If you confess Jesus is Lord, Paul says no one can do that except by the Holy Spirit. And that's the same spirit which came at Pentecost. So let me close. I want to try and make two concrete applications. The event is so extraordinary and miraculous that sometimes with a text like this, it's difficult to draw the lines um, to our own concrete situations. I want to make two, two points. The first one is this. If we live... In Pentecost time, 
at the time the ascended Christ is pouring out the Spirit, then we must be a people of optimism and hope. But we cannot allow our current struggles, our cultural situation, our political travails, which I know distress and discourage many of you, we cannot allow these things to be definitive for our outlook. You know, perpetual criticism and perpetual dissent almost always clouds the mind of sound judgment. Our time is not defined decisively by any of these things. It is not defined by our political class, our courts, or our culture at large. It is defined by the risen and ascended Christ and the gift of the Spirit. Jesus Christ lives. Every other fact is a fading shadow in light of that fact. And that fact changes the way you view this cultural situation. We cannot, you know, we may be given naturally to pessimism. I am not actually a naturally cheerful and optimistic person. Probably surprises some of you. So, someone recently said to me, you're a glass half empty kind of guy, aren't you? And I said, no, no, I'm really more of a, if you look closely, the glass is actually 60% empty kind of guy. So you may be given naturally to pessimism, but you have to narrate the time you're in correctly. So we can't let the nature of the time... This is, the, this is why I spend a few minutes on what it means to say, in these last days. That defines the nature of the time. You can't let the media or the culture tell you what time it is. You tell them what time it is. It's resurrection time. It's ascension time, Pentecost time, the time of the gospel, the day of salvation for all the nations. So be cheerful warriors. Christ has ascended and he's poured out his spirit. There's nothing all the nations with all their arsenals on earth that can do to relativize or mute that. Second, so that's the first practical point. It's, it's a point about our disposition. Second, and this is, is relatively obvious, we have to be filled with the Spirit continually. Ephesians 5 commands us, be filled with the Spirit. You've drunk of the Spirit, you confess that Jesus is Lord by the Spirit, you must continually be filled with the Spirit, and not for our own amusement. We're filled for the same reasons these disciples are filled, to speak and to bear prophetic witness, to declare the wonders and praises of God to all nations. Pentecost pushes the church out. And this means we have to share the gospel and engage in the Great Commission by the power of the Spirit. And by we, I mean everyone in the room. And so again, as I did previously, I believe, I want to refer you to some opportunities to do that that are on the table that Karen Embarado set up in the narthex. Lest we think that Pentecost does not have concrete hands and feet. Pentecost means you are filled with the Spirit for concrete deeds of gospel-oriented witness. 
So we're, we're waiting for this great and glorious day of the Lord, and we declare the gospel, which you can see in verse 21 at the end of our text. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message we bear to all peoples. Right? That is why that we have been given the prophetic spirit. Apart from this spirit, Christianity really can be a drab and colorless affair. It can be a grinding, moralistic, tedious thing. And it's good that that's the case. Because we depend on this spirit. The spirit is not just a power or an influence or a mood enhancer. The spirit is God. He's the church's Lord. He's the Lord and giver of life. And he has come. And that means there's a new day. There's a new people gathered from the scattered nations. And there are the beginnings of a new world. Let us live. Let us speak. Let us bear witness accordingly. Amen.